comfortable latte morning in conservative attire in an ergonomic chair in the sterile chill of commercial air conditioning, my interviewer, gelled hair, trimmed mustache, a solid color tie indicating all business, is telling me he suffers from a rare and severe form of narcolepsy and might fall asleep at any moment during the interview. The clinical term is type 2 narcocataplexic dysomnia, he says, matter-of-factly, and then hands me a colorful informational brochure. I am 27 years old, six weeks unemployed, previously a market researcher for San Francisco-based Love Corp, the industry leader in love, companionship, and affection products and services. I hold a bachelor's degree in business administration and marketing from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and possess three absolutely sterling letters of recommendation from respected elders within my chosen field. I leaf through the brochure, encounter tasteful sans-serif fonts, unsighted statistics, terrifying symptoms illustrated with incongruously innocuous clip art, and the interviewer says not to be concerned if, for example, midway to my response to a question such as, do you consider yourself successful, or are you a team player, or what has been your greatest professional disappointment, he, the interviewer, suddenly closes his eyes, drops his chin to his chest, and falls deeply, unshakably, asleep. Limbs slack, mouth agape, snores like artillery fire. He says this will in no way affect my chances for employment here at Howard, Snifton, Ducrass and Associates, assures me that any and all hiring decisions will be made solely based on merit, not on whether or not he makes it through the interview without passing out face forward onto his handsome mahogany desk. I have brought to the interview my resume, the aforementioned three letters of recommendation, and two forms of personal identification, one of which documents my eligibility for employment in the United States. I lease in a conspicuously three-quarters vacant apartment complex and own a car with chronic transmission problems, and for the past five years, up until my recent termination from layoff-stricken Love Corp, have been diverting a certain percentage of my earnings to a once-robust 401k fund whose current performance is only impressive if I look at the fund's quarterly growth line graph upside down, which I sometimes do, although usually only after a spate of heavy drinking. I continue reading the brochure, focusing on a section with the eye-catching subheading Hypnagogic and Hypnopompic Hallucinations, and the interviewer, whose desk is decorated with framed photos of himself posing with who I assume are his elderly parents in front of a clearly fake photo studio backdrop of a Hawaiian beach setting, replete with alabaster sand, scoliotic palms, and the pinkish-orange infusion of a stunning, picture-perfect tropical sunset, says, of course, even though I have absolutely nothing to worry about in terms of a narcoleptic episode affecting my job prospects here at Howard, Snifton, Ducrass, and Associates, self-proclaimed marketing kings of the greater metropolitan Bay Area, I should at least appreciate how this condition presents a certain professional and personal difficulties to him, Mr. Clifton J. Johnson Jr., the interviewer, such as, for instance, the preclusion of his employment in any field requiring the operation of a motor vehicle or heavy machinery, taxi driver, parking valet, 
forklift operator. Also, the constant anxiety of losing all motor functions and or consciousness during an initial handshake with a client or mandatory racial sensitivity seminar or an oral report on a target market coverage of key demographics and lifestyles during a critical international multi-party conference call. And then, if one wants to step outside the professional realm and delve into the acute narcoleptic's myriad personal disadvantages, the most obvious example is your prototypical first date slash getting to know you slash romantic dinner type situation. When, besides the standard issue anxieties of do I have spinach in my teeth, and will she laugh at my jokes, and does my hair look stupid, and will she think I'm boring, and what sort of physical manifestation of affection will be most appropriate for when I first encounter her in the previously agreed upon public location, typically the parking lot or the restaurant lobby, the type 2 narcocataplexic dysomnia sufferer has to additionally contend with the very real possibility that at any moment he will suddenly and unexpectedly pass out face first into his plate of coriander crusted mahi served over polenta cake and corn salsa with a side of shiitake mushrooms and mixed salad greens. Plus add the proverbial rock versus hard place of not wanting to reveal one's entire medical history before the drinks and appetizers have even arrived, versus falling limp into one's $20 entree without giving one's date any prior warning that this has occurred numerous times in the past, and is in no way a reflection of the current date's lack of charm, beauty, or aptitude for stimulating dinner conversation. Plus also add the unfortunate fact that type 2 narcocataplexic dysomnia is often triggered by strong emotional responses such as laughter, elation, and sexual arousal, so that, almost invariably, the dates that fail most miserably, chemistry-wise, the dinners spent in clock-checking boredom, or nail-staring silence, or tongue-gnawing discomfort, the dates spent in voluntary self-exile in the restaurant restroom, the dates more like today's job interview than actual dates, stock questions, stock answers, a paucity of romance, humor, flirtation, and pheromonal intrigue. These are the dates that go off without a hitch, narcoleptically speaking. No blackouts, no motor loss, no spectacular face dives into sourdough bread bowls full of New England-style clam chowder. The dates always ending, at the very worst, with an unenthusiastic handshake, or a half-hearted argument over who picks up the check, or a forced smile and an awkward hug, and a disingenuous suggestion to maybe do this again sometime, within seven to ten business days. Whereas, the dates that go well, the real gems, the dinner spent with a woman who is smart and funny and beautiful and attentive and who laughs at the narcoleptic's jokes and who gently removes any remnant spinach from the narcoleptic's teeth without making him feel self-conscious or embarrassed and who possesses endearing character quirks such as always wriggling her nose when she's asked a question and pronouncing the word wash as wash and compulsively eating the different food items on her plate in reverse alphabetical order, all of which, for whatever reason, drive the narcoleptic hormonally mad with desire. These are the dates that always fall victim to neurological disaster, ending not with a light peck, or a handshake, or a tender, affectionate embrace, but with an enveloping haze, 
with abrupt unconsciousness, with the narcoleptic waking up with his face half-submerged in the soup of the day, and the check on the table, and his smart, funny, beautiful and attentive date, long gone, no handwritten message, no goodbye, no proffered suggestion to maybe do this again sometime within seven to ten business days. The narcoleptic's only memento of the vanished woman, his last memory, right before blackout, of gazing deeply into her immersive, kind, presented in technicolor eyes, and thinking to himself, good God, holy moly, after all these lonely years, I think she could be the one. LoveCorp, as previously mentioned, I worked in marketing, where I analyzed demographic data, authored or co-authored test market questionnaires and surveys, and made recommendations to my superiors as to the commercial viability and sales potential of new product lines proposed by R&D. Some of the products whose potential I assessed in my first year with LoveCorp were the Don Johnson battery-operated marriage enhancer the combination CPR mannequin slash child replacement, and the de-stressing aromatic candles for divorcees, cuckolds, and widows. LoveCorp had originally devoted the bulk of its resources to its online dating service, singleplayernomore.com, which catered primarily to the video and computer gaming community and was much bollyhooed by publications such as Wired and PC Magazine for employing a user-friendly format that made the online dating experience similar to the fantasy role-playing and multiplayer first-person shooter games singleplayernomore.com's customers were more accustomed with than actual real-world human interaction and courtship. The service, for instance, matching singles to their ideal mates based on parameters such as the singles' preference of alien and zombie-slaying weaponry, innumerable homepage testimonials gushing about how true love was forged over a mutual appreciation for the bazooka, the plasma cannon, the AR-15 semi-automatic assault rifle. But by the time I joined the company, it had substantially diversified its commercial reach. There was the fidelity division, the fertility division, the prophylactic division, There were subsidiary companies that helped plan weddings, vow renewals, and honeymoons, and companies that investigated suspected philanderers, and companies that helped parents adopt orphan children from Romania, Southeast Asia, and Mozambique. My first major project was for the Women's Apparel Division, which specialized in clothing and accessories designed to enhance the target consumer's self-image and sexual confidence, and thus increase said consumer's likelihood of attracting the attention and affection of her ideal mate. Top sellers were, for instance, the Thinking Woman's Modern Corset and the More to Love push-up bra and the straight-from-Milan European slimming corrective belt. The project I was initially assigned to by the Women's Apparel Division Marketing Director concerned the potential launch of two new lines of platform footwear, the F-Me Heel and the Heart Me Heel. Heart, in this case, not spelled out, but instead denoted by the familiar stylized icon utilized by I Heart in My Paraphernalia and 
Valentine's Day cards and candies, and the occasional vanity license plate broadcasting some BMW owner's love for kittens, or Jesus, or fudge. Company legend has it that the idea for both brands came to a top-level executive secretary while she was shopping for pumps at a downtown department store and overheard a fellow customer say to the sales girl, I want a shoe that says, tear off my clothes, throw me over a table, me until I scream, but also says, but only if you really love me. The prototypes of both the F me and heart me heels were physically identical, one and a quarter inch platforms, four inch heels, ultra thin black spaghetti ankle straps, the conventional wisdom in women's apparel was that the F-Me and Heart-Me brand names would appeal to entirely different consumer subgroups, thus allowing us to market what was essentially the same shoe to double the intended target audience, thereby cutting manufacturing costs, streamlining production, and basically killing two birds with one four-inch stiletto stone. Of course, just who this target audience was i.e. what sort of woman would willingly pay $399 for a high-heeled shoe that said F me in tiny studded rhinestones across the toe vamp, versus what sort of woman would pay $399 for a shoe whose studded rhinestones formed a kitschy, maudlin, anatomically inaccurate heart, was exactly the type of question Love Corp was paying me $45,000 a year, plus health and dental, to answer. Back in the bright, fluorescent-lit, excessively air-conditioned office of Mr. Clifton J. Johnson Jr., my interviewer, I sit with perfect posture in my ergonomic chair and respond confidently and succinctly to a series of stock, obvious, unimaginative questions. What is your greatest strength? What is your greatest weakness? Explain how you would be an asset to this organization. If I had to guess, I would say that my interviewer is one of the roughly 20% of adult American males who has not had sexual intercourse in the past year. And from this, plus other easily eyeballed demographic data such as approximate age and annual income and ethnicity and gender and highest attained level of education, I can infer, with God knows how many hours of statistical study backing me up, which of Love Corp's myriad love companionship and affection products and services Mr. Johnson Jr. is most likely to buy. The Lonely Man's Pocket Guide to Female Attraction, for example. The one-a-day desk calendar of conversation starters unlikely to result in criminal charges. Testosterone-enhancing aftershave. Virility for men mouthwash. The Lonely Man's Pocket Guide to Overcoming Crippling Social Anxiety. 3D Virtual Date version 2.0. As part of my severance package from Love Corp, I am allowed free access to a limited number of Love Corp's love, companionship, and affection services for up to six months after my effective date of termination. Said services include speed marriage counseling, Mozambique child adoption, a beta version of 3D Virtual Date version 2.0, and investigation of suspected infidelity by a PI firm called Honey Entrapment. On the one hand, all of the free services conciliatorily offered by Love Corp are either completely non-applicable to my love, 
companionship and affection needs, or are ethically dubious, or are just plain depressing, but, on the other hand, they are free, and to not use them seems somehow like a form of surrender, seems like an acknowledgement that my severance package is nothing more than one big extended middle finger from corporate. So, as a result, I've been milking my severance as much as I possibly can by tooling around with 3D Virtual Date version 2.0 during my free time, which, due to my unemployment, is dispiritingly ample. How 3D Virtual Date works is like this. First, you construct a pixelated avatar of yourself by selecting from a variety of skin tones, hairstyles, eye colors, nose shapes, etc. Then you input basic demographic information about yourself, age, occupation, hobbies, geographic location, annual income. Then you seek out another pixelated avatar of the desired gender with enticing physical characteristics, interests, character attributes, etc., which, like yours, may be completely fabricated, may be little more than hollow lies, may exist only in the fevered imagination of some squinting, lonely soul typing away at his or her keyboard in a dank, poorly ventilated, subterranean lair. And then you go on a virtual date together in one of many 3D-rendered preset locations such as turn-of-the-century Paris, or ancient Rome, or a jungle clearing in the late Mesozoic, where you may exchange acronym-laced instant messages, and enjoy virtual coffee, and admire virtual aqueducts and gladiator matches, and watch virtual velociraptors and tyrannosaurus rexes gorge themselves in the vital organs of virtual triceratops. If this already sounds unappealing, you should also remember that I only have access to the beta version, so add to my six-month trial period of virtual romance a swarm of uncorrected bugs. Like, for instance, my computer screen freezing up whenever I try to kiss my date sweetly on the forehead, or a fatal syntax error whenever I try to virtually hold her hand, or dates in ancient Rome or the late Mesozoic occasionally ending with a gladiator eviscerating my date with a trident, or a velociraptor devouring her torso, or a tyrannosaurus rex biting off her head. But my main complaint with 3D Virtual Date version 2.0, its fatal flaw, which I suspect has not been rectified by Love Corp's brilliant but extremely pale software coders in time for 3D Virtual Date version 2.1, is that putting the moves on a woman's polygonally constructed online in time for in time for 3D Virtual Date version 2.1 is that putting the moves on a woman's polygonally constructed online LOL-spouting doppelganger is a poor, impersonal substitute for tangible, in-the-flesh human courtship. The warmth of a real woman's touch. The radiance of a real woman's eyes. The rhythms of her speech. The timbre of her voice. A woman's laugh. Her scent. Her smile. I still remember those first glorious days with Sarah, my co-worker at Love Corp, when we were assigned to work on the F Me, Heart Me, Heels project together. Sarah, with her Bachelor of Arts in Business Economics from UC San Bernardino, 
Sarah with her unwieldy Slavic surname and her penchant for conducting spur-of-the-moment informal surveys of fellow passengers in the office elevator. I remember how even in her dress code-appropriate market researcher attire, she was obscenely beautiful, how the sight of her made me spill untold cups of coffee onto census data and walk face-first into filing cabinets, how her office manager suggested saving hundreds of dollars on electricity costs by using Sarah's smile to light up our workspace. I remember how she introduced herself to me with said incandescent smile, how she spared me lunch break loneliness by inviting me to her favorite middle school-esque folding table in the corporate cafeteria, how the first informal in-elevator survey question she asked me was, how likely, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the least likely, 10 being the most likely, would you be to purchase an ice cream product called Public Execution Without Trial by Chocolate? I remember PowerPoint presentations, marveling at her lapidary analysis of demographic data. I remember mandatory racial sensitivity seminars, lost in the beauty of her gray-green Slavic eyes. I remember days spent compiling secondary research together, Sarah and I scouring figures from the U.S. Census Bureau and academic demographic databases and in-house questionnaires and surveys conducted by our predecessors and colleagues at Love Corp, sharing our findings with each other in Sarah's tiny office with its ordered chaos and its obsolete wall calendars and its knee-weakening aroma of Sarah's perfume, which I later learned was Love Corp's Sophia Loren-endorsed exceptionality for women, permeating sweetly throughout the mechanically ventilated air. And I remember nights spent lying alone in bed in my then-only-one-quarter-empty apartment complex with its minimalist bachelor's furnishings and its junk mail-strewn 300 square feet of floor space and my next-door neighbors making vocally assertive love what seemed like mere inches away from my bedroom wall. But it did not, as had been standard protocol, throw a pillow over my head, or grit my teeth in annoyance, loneliness, and jealousy, or guiltily conjure up the few fleeting images I could still recall of the last woman who had voluntarily allowed me to see her naked. Instead, ignoring my neighbor's barely muffled erotic enthusiasm, I engaged my thoughts in an intense mental review of every joke Sarah had told that workday, every glance we had exchanged, every elevator survey she had given. Who would you trust more as a product spokesperson for an anti-wrinkle hydrating facial cream, Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman, or television and film actress Sarah Jessica Parker? And, after replaying every fleeting moment of our subtextually charged physical contact, every close encounter in a crowded elevator or narrow hall, every intimate moment we'd shared huddled over cups of coffee and laptop computers and reams of demographic data and her cramped, spreadsheet-strewn, exceptionality for women-scented office, I considered the full body of evidence I'd amassed since that fateful introduction in the F Me, Heart Me Project orientation meeting when she'd first offered me her ringless hand and flashed me her 120-watt incandescent smile, and I reached what I considered to be the highly statistically significant conclusion that we were falling for each other, that we were meant for each other, that we were the owners of two hearts calibrated to beat as one. I, her Romeo, she, my Juliet, 
minus the familial acrimony and the poison and the tragic fourth and fifth act deaths. And then came the office party. The office party was medieval themed. There were interns from UC Berkeley with choral experience singing madrigals and a classic rock cover band playing hits by Van Halen and ACDC on the hurdy-gurdy, the dulcimer, and the lute. Professional caterers dressed as serving wenches carried silver trays of turkey legs, pheasant, roasted boar, and mutton, and a man dressed as a wizard who I later learned was the senior vice president of global sales and business development attempted to turn various base metals into gold. The men wore tunics, the women wore full-length gowns, and the director of marketing wore a gilded crown and a luxurious velvet robe both items charged as business expenses on the marketing director's company MasterCard. An entry-level market data analyst, dressed as Robin Hood, our assistant director of human resources, wore a full suit of armor. I had committed myself to revealing my romantic feelings for Sarah at Friday's medieval-themed office party earlier in the week during a PowerPoint presentation on existing and potential market segments that Sarah winningly delivered to the rest of the Project F Me Heart Me team. How my heart danced as she conducted a K-means cluster analysis of data from an over-the-phone survey on preferred stiletto height. How my body trembled when she smiled at me after a joke concerning a sales rep, an advertising copywriter, and a market research technician walking into a bar. I knew there would be copious amounts of draft ale at the office party, so the setting seemed to be right to finally inform Sarah of my percolating, as-yet-unproclaimed passion. Perhaps I could even get the classic rock minstrels to play a slow dance, or the UC Berkeley interns to serenade Sarah with a madrigal in a romance language of her choice. I arrived at the party in my tunic to pre-recorded trumpet fanfare and the Berkeley interns singing My Bonnie Lass She Smileth and headed for the restroom where I made last-minute adjustments to my hair and took some anti-anxiety medication a friend had traded me for the OxyContin I had scored for my dentist post-wisdom teeth removal. This friend had apparently not used my painkillers for quote-unquote pain, but rather recreational activities involving female members of his law school's moot court team, and many inexpensive, brightly colored beads acquired in New Orleans' French Quarter, circa pre-Katrina Mardi Gras. I stepped out of the bathroom, observed the senior vice president of global sales and business development attempt to turn a pile of W-4 forms into gold, weaved my way past various peasants and paupers and ladies and lords, and reached the corseted serving wench at the open bar, where I downed innumerable draught ales in preparation for my proclamation of undying love, and lo, Sarah, my bonnie lass, did appear, in her full-length Lady of the Manor gown, crushed velvet, gold trim, gothic sleeves, Sarah resplendent, radiant, perfect, and on the arm of a man in denim jeans and an Oxford shirt, who she introduced as Steve, my boyfriend. The boyfriend who had definitely not been mentioned during any of the intimate moments Sarah and I had shared while scouring federal census data together in her cramped, chaotic, 
poorly slash romantically lit office, the boyfriend who had definitely not been present in the many nocturnal fantasies and intricately envisioned scenarios I have been enjoying for the past few weeks in the privacy of my 300 square foot studio apartment, the boyfriend who, as we were being introduced, condescendingly complimented me on my breeches, authentic leather dagger sheath, and tunic, despite his being the one jerk-off at the medieval-themed office party who seemed to think that the Knights of the Round Table included Sirs Hilfiger, Abercrombie, and Fitch. And it is now, as I recall the shock and humiliation of having my hypothesis of star-crossed love cruelly, catastrophically refuted, that my interviewer, Mr. Clifton J. Johnson Jr., the self-professed type 2 narcocataplexic disomniac begins to fall asleep, his eyelids fluttering, his face dropping, his speech slackening like the halting dialogue of some child's faltering wind-up toy. Mr. Johnson Jr. tries to ask me how I handle pressure, the syllables of pressure stretching out into an endless, soporific, pitch-shifting melisma, and I remember how I stood there, in my breeches and tunic, smiling dumbly, as Sarah told me that Steve was in advertising, and had been the project lead for Office Depot's now-legendary magazine and billboard campaign, featuring moody, suggestively posed teenage models wearing nothing but 4x6 post-it notes and self-adhesive folder dividers and mailing labels. Mr. Johnson tries to ask me how I measure success, the last double S of success self-perpetuating in an everlasting, snake-like hiss. And I remember how Steve clasped Sarah's hand as she spoke, how he tenderly caressed her skin with his thumb, how my heart became as heavy as the crates of census, demographic, and statistical reports I often helped Sarah carry from her car to her intimately cluttered office. Mr. Johnson tries to ask me one last question. Why, he says. Why? 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 But before he can get any further, his eyes close, his voice trails off, and his head slumps forward, slamming into my impressive, acid-free, 100% cotton fiber resume lying on his handsome mahogany desk. And as Mr. Clifton J. Johnson Jr. lies there, unconscious, my educational background and prior work experience no doubt imprinting itself into his forehead. I remember how I excused myself from Sarah and Steve, saying there was a lady-in-waiting from accounts receivable I needed to talk to, how instead I made a hasty beeline to the unlimited mulled wine and draught ale at the open bar, how the cover band played Sweet Emotion, I Want You to Want Me, Beast of Burden, Highway to Hell, as Steve and Sarah danced the night away, holding each other tight, gazing rapturously into each other's eyes during the power ballads, while back by the open bar where I watched my fair maiden swivel and swoon and the Berkeley interns sang Frog Went According and the serving wenches kept the draught ale coming, I became more and more intoxicated until I eventually staggered toward the restroom fell short near a wall-hung tapestry depicting the execution of Joan of Arc, sank to my knees, keeled over, and sprayed the commercial carpeting with vomit, which the senior vice president of global sales and business development, in 
his wizard's cloak and tall, pointy, crescent moon emblazoned hat, collected within alchemist's flask, and attempted to turn into gold. lighting and white men in suits informing me I should hear back from them in seven to ten business days and I'm no closer to the promised land of meaningful full-time employment. More specifically, I am in the office of a short, squat, balding man who, ever since introductorily shaking my hand, has not once taken his eyes off his desktop computer screen, his right index finger periodically clicking a wireless mouse, and his face set in a humorless, joyless, impenetrable expression that says, business is being conducted. The man, Mr. Eldridge Heathcote Kinniford, my interviewer, wears a Bluetooth ear set and has problem skin, and if I had to guess, 
is likely one of the roughly 13% of U.S. adult males whose viewing of online pornography causes him to worry that he might not satisfy his partner's sexual needs. A man who, according to Love Corp's primary research data, belongs firmly within the target demographic for the Don Johnson Miracle Cream, the Hydraulic Love Elongator, the Lonely Man's Pocket Guide to Avoiding Erectile Dysfunction. Mr. HK clicks his wireless mouse and squints at his screen, and I wait in respectful silence, settling into the sweet spot of my state-of-the-art ergonomic chair. In terms of height, Mr. Heathcote Kinniford is the third shortest interviewer I have encountered in my quest for meaningful employment thus far. In terms of paleness, he is a tie for fourth palest. In terms of squatness, he is the second most squat. In terms of baldness, he is, without question, the baldest. It says here that you graduated summa cum laude from Columbia University, says Mr. HK. Congratulations, that's quite an achievement. No, sir, I say. That's not correct. It says you pursued a joint major in statistics and economics, continues Mr. HK, unperturbed, with an additional minor in East Asian studies. No, sir, I say. But Mr. Heathcote Kenford, my interviewer, ignores me. It says you earned an MBA from the Sloan School of Management at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he reports, reverently, still squinting at his desktop computer. Very impressive. I'm an MIT man myself. Men's at Manas, mind in hand. How do you like Cambridge in the autumn? I think you have the wrong resume, I say, but Eldridge's eyes stay glued to his screen. It says you earned a 3.97 GPA at Columbia, he says, his voice betraying snowballing excitement, that you completed your bachelor's degree in three years, that you were a permanent fixture on the dean's list, that you studied abroad in China. Wow, how jila, huh, yoisa, huh, peifunyi. I'm sorry, I reply helplessly. I have no idea what you're saying. office party, despite my shattered dreams, and my decimated heart, and my vomiting all over the carpet, which I told my co-workers was due to food poisoning from either the roast boar or the mutton, Sarah and I maintained our friendship, chatting in the hallway, forwarding each other YouTube videos, sharing statistician jokes, eating with each other in the corporate cafeteria every lunch break. We also continued working together on Project F Me, Heart Me, spending long hours side by side in Sarah's cloistered office, analyzing data, comparing market strategies, designing questionnaires and surveys of potential target consumers in regards to their receptivity to the F Me and or Heart Me brands. To my great surprise, I was able to not only function, but in fact thrive as a valued productive, integral member of Team F Me Heart Me, even though it meant nearly eight hours a day in close, sometimes sardine-like proximity to the object of my unrequited affections. 
eight hours of hearing the lilting crests and troughs of Sarah's Southern California accent, of seeing her syllabically daunting surname on interoffice mail, of passing by anywhere from the coffee machine to the vending machines to the all-in-one office printer, and never failing to detect a heart-skipping hint of her trademark exceptionality for women perfume. I attribute my composure, when in the presence of my beloved yet unattainable Sarah, to the highly analytic, impersonal, data-driven nature of my chosen profession, my immersion in love as represented by bar graphs, pie charts, spreadsheets, box and whisker plots, my immersion in love as presented by the U.S. Census Bureau, by Microsoft PowerPoint, by Microsoft Excel, when in the workplace, when in Sarah's office, surrounded by manila folders and three-ring binders and milk crates and corrugated cardboard boxes full of statistical studies indicating, for instance, the percentage of U.S. adult males who cry themselves to sleep, on average, at least three times every bi-weekly pay period, I could, on command, turn off my own romantic dissatisfaction and yearning as easily as I could flip off a light switch. I could joke with Sarah in the hallway. I could converse with her in the cafeteria over plastic-wrapped chicken. I could answer one of Sarah's elevator surveys. Which cartoon animal would you most trust to sell you basic liability auto insurance? A beaver, a walrus, or a Barbary macaque? And not become overwhelmed by sadness not collapse into a fetal position, not furiously pound the elevator's door open button as I contemplated Sarah in Steve's arms, Sarah in Steve's bed, Sarah asking Steve private survey questions I would never be granted the opportunity to hear. No, I kept my composure. I kept my cool. I was a paragon of dispassion, of rationality, of diligence. I was a titan of demographic research. And then came the night. Before I tell you about the bad thing that I sort of maybe did, I want you to first envision me coming home from work. I want you to envision me on the BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, riding the subway from Embarcadero to my apartment in Daly City, with the subway screeching like 10 million steel fingernails on a chalkboard in hell. The workday is over, and my head is no longer swimming with statistics. I am no longer protected from the potentially damaging stimuli of the outside world by a sheltering buffer of pie charts, infographs, U.S. federal census data. Envision me on the BART, in my office-appropriate attire, seeing a young couple making out. On the BART, there is always a young couple making out. Envision me looking away at a newspaper, at my shoes, at a wall-hung advertisement for the Bay Area Unwed Expected Mother Hotline, and then looking back at the young couple going at it full throttle next to a probably homeless man missing half his right leg. Envision writhing. Envision groping. Envision the visible utilization of tongues. Envision... After I look away once more from our public transportation, Romeo and Juliet, my eyes meeting those of another business professional. His hair is gray. His suit is well-tailored. His face, after turning to lip-locked R&J, 
then returning to me, signals the universal sardonic expression, kids, envisioning me smiling and laughing and acknowledging said sardonic expression with a kindred expression of my own that says, yes, I too am a successful and mature business professional for whom excessive displays of public affection are a cause for eye-rolling, for mockery, for derision. Envision me winking, envision me shaking my head, envision me deliberately mouthing the phrase, get a room. The business professional returns to his paper, our little moment over, and I return to the Bay Area on what expected mother hotline. This is when I become profoundly, unbearably, sad. Envision me spending the rest of the ride to Daly City, wishing I could make out with Sarah on the Bay Area Rapid Transit, wishing I could make business professionals shake their heads, make mothers cover their children's eyes, make one-and-a-half-legged homeless men flash wide grins and hum the opening bars to Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. The problem is that outside the walls and office partitions of Love Corp, the industry leader in love, companionship, and affection products and services, I can no longer block out these thoughts with demographic data analysis. I can no longer rely on race, age, marital status, median household incomes to quiet the protestations of my yearning, chronically unsatiated heart. The subway screeching sounds like the death squeals of a million banshees, like a war being entirely fought with steel cutting lathes and masonry grinders. Envision me watching Romeo and Juliet exit the train, arm in arm, in grasping, groping, adolescent love. Envision me reading the full text of the unwed expectant mother hotline ad. Envision me accidentally missing my stop. Envision me in my studio apartment. Me thinking of Sarah as I prepare my dinner, as I discard my junk mail, as I eat alone in front of the television, as I wash my dishes, as I go to bed. Envision me sometimes becoming so enveloped in remembrances and visions and fantasies of Sarah that I accidentally put my junk mail in the refrigerator, microwave my 401k quarterly statements, attempt to eat letters from Geico and Publishers Clearinghouse and the Donald Trump Institute with mustard, cumin, and a touch of cayenne pepper. Envision me lying in bed. Envision me clutching my pillow with a death grip. Envision me, eyes closed, in the dark, trying desperately to fall asleep with my neighbors making bed frame rattling love at a volume that laughs at the pathetic thinness of my bedroom walls and my thoughts, no matter how hard I try to think of prospective market segments, of mean and median household income, of the sex, age, ethnicity, and marital status of an imaginary target demographic of sheep, my thoughts always turning to Sarah, 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 Sarah. I'm not telling you what to think. I'm not asking for your sympathy. I just want you to consider my state of mind in my bedroom, alone, at night, when I did the bad thing I sort of maybe did. Okay. 
the bad thing I sort of maybe did was I called up a buddy of mine who works for the Love Corp subsidiary Honey Entrapment, a buddy who owes me a big-time favor due to my once vouching for an incredibly factually shaky alibi he gave differing versions of to both his wife and the Oakland police. I called up my buddy late at night and sounded him out on the logistics and legality of potentially attaching a GPS tracking device to the personal vehicle of a man who I suspected was cheating on a dear close friend and a co-worker of mine. The logistics of maybe sort of keeping tabs on said man with a camcorder and a parabolic microphone and maybe the occasional provocatively attired honey entrapment actress to confirm with high-definition video and state-of-the-art audio recording equipment if something was actually up. Now, I realize that this doesn't sound so good, that it doesn't paint me in the most positive of light, but now envision, if you will, that it's several months later, the recession has hit full force, and I'm no longer at Love Corp and, by extension, no longer protected from thinking about Sarah 24-7 by census figures, Microsoft PowerPoint presentations, three-ring binders brimming with demographic reports. Instead, I'm sitting in ergonomic chairs, in excessive air conditioning, trying to convince white men in suits of my value in the market economy. And when I'm not in ergonomic chairs, I'm at home, in my bedroom, on my laptop, tooling around with 3D Virtual Date version 2.0, and now envision, please, that after three months of trading IDKs and BTWs and ROFLOLs with unseen strangers and seeing my virtual dates eviscerated by virtual gladiators and virtual T-Rexes and virtual velociraptors and having my computer screen freeze up anytime I try to even attempt a genuine display of affection. Envision that maybe my enthusiasm for 3D virtual date version 2.0 is wearing a little thin. Then maybe I'm ready to pursue some other options in terms of reaping the benefits of my available free Love Corp products and services courtesy of my severance package. Envision that one night, when I'm clutching my pillow particularly tightly, when my next door neighbors are making love particularly aerobically and audibly, it occurs to me that Honey Entrapment's GPS tracking services for the next three months are free, as in gratis, as in zero, zilch, nada. Envision this. What would you do in my position? I'm not telling you what to think. I'm not trying to sway you one way or the other. I'm just saying, consider all the available data. Consider the benefits. Consider the costs. Consider lying in your bed every night, trying to fall asleep by counting sheep arranged by mean per annum wool production, and being able to think only of Sarah. Consider this. Draw your own conclusions. Make an informed decision. It says here your name is Jill, says Mr. Eldridge Heathcote Kenford, my interviewer. No, sir, I say. It is not. Jill is normally a girl's name, Mr. H.K. muses, short for Jillian, if I'm not mistaken. I wouldn't know, sir, I say. 
my name's not. What was it like as a kid growing up with a girl's name, says my interviewer, cutting me off, eyes darting across his computer screen. I no longer even try to respond. I'll bet it was tough, continues Mr. HK. I'll bet it built character. I'll bet it built gumption. Let me give it to you straight. We could use a man named Jill here at Kojak, Kraft, and Associates. After Sarah and I had completed phase two of Project F Me, Heart Me, phase two being the preparation of all surveys and questionnaires to be administered to a representative sample of U.S. adult and teenage women, we proceeded to phase three, implementation. This was the phase that was Sarah's bread and butter, the phase where her singular genius for target demographic research truly shined. Sarah's specialty, in terms of survey implementation, was the face-to-face interview, an invaluable yet dying art in the age of high-speed internet connection, the age of automated voice messaging systems, of human obsolescence, of frustrated target consumers issuing vendettas and shouting death threats at cheerful pre-recorded strangers over the phone. Whereas others in the marketing division had brilliant mathematical and analytical minds, but serious deficiencies in the interpersonal department. For instance, Sergey, who could recite the first 10,000 digits of pi, but couldn't speak to an attractive female client without breaking out into hives. Sarah was a classic type B extrovert, charismatic, easygoing, friendly, approachable. She shook her interviewee's hands, flashed them her legendary 120-watt smile, and within five minutes, they were opening themselves up to Sarah like they had known her their entire lives. To appreciate the importance of Sarah's knack for establishing an instant rapport and mutual trust with her interviewees, you need to understand that one of the most important factors motivating a target consumer's purchase, a motivating factor we as market researchers are always keenly interested in discussing with our interviewees, is fear, i.e., if we really want to know what an interviewee will or won't buy, we don't ask him, what do you want, or what do you need? We ask him, instead, what are you afraid of? Thus, we have radio ads literally shouting the most recent figures on heart attack deaths. We have grim reminders of our mortality on unsolicited mass mailings for life insurance. We have TV newscasts luring us with reports on the top 10 household items that can instantly kill us. We have heads of state selling their shell-shocked constituents on wars and torture, and televangelists selling their damnation-fearing flock on don't-wait-act-now eternal life, and duty-free luxury boutiques selling Armani anti-terrorism sunglasses and airports that continually remind us that the current national terror alert level is orange. But what is not as well known, what is still poorly understood, What still causes heated and sometimes violent debate amongst socially lubricated market researchers at our nation's all-you-can-drink-for-twelve-dollars happy hours is the science of this fear, its mechanics, its set of axioms, theorems, laws. Why one consumer with a fear of airborne viruses will spend hundreds on multivitamins, 
that another consumer will spend thousands on a hazmat suit. Why one consumer with the fear of her children falling victim to sexual predators will educate said children on being careful around strangers, and another consumer will outfit her children with intradermal GPS tracking devices so she can monitor their whereabouts at all times. Why one consumer with an intense fear of dying from carbon monoxide inhalation will confront said fear by purchasing and installing a carbon monoxide detector in every level and in every bedroom of his home, and another consumer will confront his fear by purchasing an oxygen tank and protective aviator's helmet with accompanying air mask, which he insists on wearing 24-7, in the shower, at the fitness center, at the supermarket, little league games, bar and bat mitzvahs, his fear of succumbing to fatal carbon monoxide poisoning, superseding his fears of, for instance, losing the respect of his peers, of losing his plum sales job at O'Halloran Motors, of losing his prestigious leadoff slot on his adult league softball team, of losing his fitness center membership, of losing the affection and support of his dearly beloved wife when she tires of constantly tripping over her husband's compressed air hose and helping carry his oxygen supply daily down the stairs and repeatedly explaining his unusual physical appearance to her parents and cousins and in-laws and Yaya and Papu during her family's annual Greek Orthodox Easter dinner and struggling to achieve physical intimacy every single goddamn night with a man whose terrifying facial apparatus and nightmarish heavy breathing makes said wife always feel like she's getting by Darth Vader. These are the things we do not yet understand, which is where Sarah comes in. Sarah sits with her interviewees in their homes corporate offices, in booths at trade shows, shopping malls, farmers markets, charity run walks, county fairs, and listens as the interviewees tell her their fears. Women who fear heights, and rattlesnakes, and accidentally walking into open elevator shafts. Women who fear the ocean, and public speaking, and walking alone, downtown, at night. Of course, at Love Corp, the industry leader in love, companionship, and affection products and services, demographic researchers are primarily concerned with the fears that can be most easily exploited to increase a given product's market potential, and so Sarah coaxes her interviewees into discussing their fears of loneliness, of heartbreak, of betrayal, of abandonment, the fear of losing one's husband to a younger, sleeker, shinier version of oneself, for example, the fear of husbands upgrading to cocktail waitresses, to their children's babysitters, to Till Death Do Us Part, version 2.0. Sarah listens, receptively, comfortingly, and the women tell her how they fear losing their husbands and boyfriends and girlfriends' affections by gaining weight, by becoming pregnant, by losing gluteal firmness, by growing old. All of these fears brimming with market potential, mind you, in no small part responsible for the overwhelming success of Love Corp's cheating death moisturizing cream, do-it-yourself collagen enhancement, eternal youth in a can. 
Sarah listens, and the women reveal their fears, and everything gets recorded by a state-of-the-art digital device for careful study and analysis by the hard-working, qualitatively rigorous men and women of marketing. The interviewees choke up, clutch their armrests, wring their hands, weep. The interviews end, and Sarah thanks everyone for their time. Sometimes, in the Love Corp cafeteria, during lunch break, Sarah would relate to me the most memorable and harrowing of her interviewee stories. Names were left out, replaced by single-letter abbreviations, A, H, K. One of the stories Sarah told me concerned a middle-aged woman, M, who in her mid-twenties had been taken hostage at a Dallas, Texas area amusement park called Oil World. Oil World was owned and operated by ExxonMobil, and M worked there for several years as a costume performer in an hourly variety show called the Black Gold Country Time Musical Review, which used song, dance, and audio animatronic pageantry to both entertain park visitors and convince them that petroleum, as an energy source, was efficient, practical, clean, safe, and fun. The hostage situation, which involved disgruntled former oil world employees with alleged ties to radical environmentalist groups storming the Black Gold Country Time Musical Review and ski masks during a 2 to 2.35 p.m. performance, sending the paying crowd scattering with semi-automatic gunfire and tying up M and her fellow costume performers to an onstage oil derrick had received considerable national media coverage, but both Sarah and I were too young to have witnessed, for instance, the iconic live NBC5 footage of the musical review's audio-animatronic woodland creatures continuing to sing the praises of petroleum as the masked gunmen barricaded themselves behind an all-opossum jug band and issued to the police their demands. But the gunmen, already exhaustively profiled by every major news outlet, motives, alleged benefactors, made-for-TV deaths in a barrage of Dallas SWAT team bullets, were not the crux of M's, the interviewee's, story. Mostly, the story concerned M's co-worker, C, who performed as the beloved ExxonMobil oil world character Mr. Bungles, a friendly, furry, accident-prone muskrat with a weak spot for petrochemicals. M, by the way, performed as Miss Petunia, a flirtatious and miniskirt-clad beaver who sang lead vocals on a ballad about diesel fuel. M's story starts after the masked gunmen have already subdued the costume performers and tied them with thick rope to the oil derrick and shot off the head of a singing audio-animatronic skunk to demonstrate that they, the gunmen, mean business. At this point, it goes without saying, M is a complete wreck. She's tied to the oil derrick, unable to move, weeping, overcome with debilitating fear. Fear of never again seeing her husband, S, an outdoor barbecue grill salesman. Fear of never again seeing her parents, L and J, 
who she'd pettily argued with the last time she'd seen them about the intrinsic indignity and sadness of compulsively clipping supermarket coupons, fear of never getting to have children, never holding her own beautiful baby in her arms, never getting to witness first words, first sentences, first steps, and videotaped spelling bees, and gymnastics routines, and dance recitals, and secure report cards, and Christmas card photos, and dental appointment reminders to the refrigerator with magnets, basically your standard issue stuff in a hostage situation. Nothing Sarah hadn't already heard before, during her surprisingly substantial number of test market interviews of former victims of violent abduction. But then C, tied to the oil derrick directly adjacent to M, regains consciousness after passing out from a plump blow to the head, and things start to get interesting. What C does, after regaining consciousness, after observing his surroundings and discovering his hands and feet restrained and the beaver suit-clad sea tied up beside him and the gunmen huddled behind the possum band with their guns pointed at sea and his costumed colleagues menacingly. What C does is he tells M that he loves her, and not love in the way that Exxon Mobile Oil World's audio-animatronic woodland creatures tell visiting children, I love you, but love as in nightly envisioning marriage proposals and honeymoons and 10th wedding anniversary romantic getaways to remote Caribbean islands love. Love as in willing to renounce all personal belongings, relocate to a war-torn region of sub-Saharan Africa, slash convert to an obscure orthodox religion founded by a known clinical schizophrenic love. C tells M that he loves her, that for the past three years, ever since M landed a gig as Miss Petunia in the Black Gold Country Time Musical Review, he has thought of nothing but her, that during M's featured solo in an Exxon Mobile kind of love, the Musical Review's show-stopping ballad about the benefits of diesel fuel, C always watches M in a paralyzed state of wonderment and desire from behind the all opossum band, where the masked gunmen now huddle and issue their demands. C's eyes fixed on M and his mouth frozen open in awe and his heart performing somersaults and pommel horse routines in his chest. Keep in mind, all of this is emitting from somewhere inside a giant polyester muskrat head. A head with synthetic whiskers, comically bulging eyes, goofy oversized teeth. The muskrat professes to M his undying love, and meanwhile M thinks of her husband, of her parents, of her sister, uncles, aunts, nieces, nephews, the places she might now never get to visit, the children she might now never get to have. C professes to M his undying love, and M catches only maybe one sentence out of every three. Something about C waiting outside the employee locker room after every show, just to catch a glimpse of M sans beaver costume, singing M's trademark song, an Exxon Mobile kind of love, every single morning while lathering, rinsing, and repeating in the shower papering his bedroom wall with every piece of promotional literature he can find, featuring pictures of M or possibly her understudy as Miss Petunia. But C is persistent, 
the floodgates of three years of unrequited longing are opened, and now nothing, not even the exhortations of a ski-masked gunman to, for Christ's sakes, shut the f*** up, can make him stop. The audio-animatronic woodland creatures move on to an ExxonMobil kind of love, shimmying syphilitically and singing the backup harmonies, and C keeps professing his love, hysterically, desperately, muffled by his exoskeletal muskrat head, until M is no longer able to think of her husband, her parents, her nieces and nephews, her unborn children. Instead, she's inundated only with C's exultations of undying love, and M's reaction, similar to that of the ski-masked gunmen, is, shut the f- up, shut up, please, for the love of God, shut up. M is tied with heavy rope to an oil derrick. She can't move her arms or her legs. She has masked gunmen pointing terrifying semi-automatic weapons at her. She wants only to be able to see her husband one last time before the gunmen brutally murder her. And she is encased in the sweltering, unair-conditioned husk of a buxom, miniskirt-clad beaver. And now this costume co-worker in three years has barely spoken to her, who has never once interacted with her outside Oil World's black gold country time musical reviews canopy pavilion, who M has to struggle for ten seconds or so just to remember his name, is professing his quote-unquote love for her, except it doesn't sound like love to M. It sounds more like obsession, like perversion, like the manifestation of some not-yet-clinically-diagnosed socio-psychological disorder. C professes his love, and M thinks, Please, God, someone, make him stop. She wants very badly to get away from C, but she can't move her arms or legs. C professes his love, and the Dallas SWAT team approaches, and M tries to think of her husband, but can only consider the horrifically comical muskrat head of C, as he tells her how he'll be good to her, how he'll love her always and forever, how her every wish will be his command. And then the SWAT team strikes, the bullets fly, the gunmen, discovering their possum band barricade to be far flimsier than they anticipated, collapse to the black gold country time musical review stage, either mortally wounded or dead, and C and M are quickly whisked away in opposite directions by tactical police, C's professions of love growing fainter and fainter until they eventually diminish into nothingness. So, like many other survivors of violent abductions, M experiences severe and persistent emotional trauma for many years after the initial hostage situation. She sees a slew of psychotherapeutic professionals, is prescribed a cupboard full of antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications, dabbles desperately in myriad non-traditional treatments and therapies, ranging from acupuncture to yoga to Buddhist meditation. Eventually, due in no small part to the marital stress caused by M's enduring psychological problems, M and her husband file for divorce, and M moves back in with her parents in nearby Plano, where she still resides to this day. M is doing better by this point at the time of Sarah's test market interview, gainfully employed, the owner of three beloved dogs, 
volunteering regularly at a local AIDS hospice, but she, M, still relives the hostage situation almost every night via a terrifying, recurrent dream. In the dream, she is tied to the oil derrick on the Black Gold Country Time Musical Review stage next to C. The masked gunmen are behind the possum band, waving their semi-automatics menacingly, and the Dallas SWAT team approaches. C professes to M his undying love. M struggles to break free of her bonds. The audio-animatronic woodland creatures perform an Exxon Mobil kind of love, and then the SWAT team strikes, the bullets fly, and the gunmen are vanquished. Except, this time, in the dream, no one whisks M away. She is left there, tied to the oil derrick, the sea rambling on and on about his obsessive love as the gunman's blood slowly trickles its way to C and M's immovable feet. And this is her deepest, darkest fear. Not the fear of again being abducted by ski-masked gunmen, not the fear of again being tied to a full oil derrick, of being paralyzed inside a lascivious beaver costume, subdued with heavy rope. No. Instead, the fear of being confronted, once more, with an inescapable and unwanted love. Of feeling guilty for not being able to return someone's affections, of not being able to requite someone's most ardent desires, of, without intention, awareness, or culpability, being at least tangentially responsible for someone's intense longing, torment, and emotional pain. The fear of comparing, long after her obsessive admirer has been extricated from M's daily life, his love, the admirer's love, however creepy and unhealthy and insidious it may be, with the love of, for instance, her husband, of realizing, after a particularly bruising argument on a particularly trying day, during a particularly rough patch in M's and her husband's marriage, that M's husband would never relocate to war-torn sub-Saharan Africa for her, that he would never renounce all his personal belongings if she asked him to, that he would never convert to an orthodox religion founded by a known clinical schizophrenic, and who's to say that's the true measure of love, M thinks, right? But then again, who's to say that it isn't? Who's to say, for instance, that what M's husband feels for her is actually love? That his increasing silence, his increasing distance, his increasing bewilderment as M struggles to cope with the psychological fallout of her survived emotionally traumatic event isn't any less real love than the hysterical ramblings of a man encased inside a googly-eyed muskrat costume, that what she has always thought of as love, as in capital L, love, is merely the love of radio jingles, of magazine ads for designer cologne, of brooding, high-cheekboned, chronically lusty men and women in low-rise jeans commercials, an ethereal emergence of affection, vanished by the next commercial break. This is her greatest fear, of never really being loved, of never discovering what love really is, 
of having C from inside Mr. Bungle's the petrochemical-loving, accident-prone, bulging-eyed polyester muskrat confessed to her earnestly, ardently, his undying love, and thinking this might be the closest to real love she's ever going to get. I must say, says Mr. Eldridge Heathcote Kenford, my interviewer, gushing over someone else's resume, that your prior work experience with Sloan, Peters, and Riverhead speaks for itself. Sir, I've never worked for Sloan, Peters, or Riverhead, I say. 1,000 plus hours of volunteer service with Ronald McDonald House, Habitat for Humanity, a home away from homelessness, soup kitchens and food banks by the dozen. No, sir, I say, guiltily. I must politely disagree. Your credentials are immaculate. Your letters of reference, jaw-dropping. Sir, I say, yes, sir, but those are not my credentials. Those are not my letters of reference. You will be our golden boy, says Mr. H.K. You will be our golden boy, says Mr. H.K., ignoring me, eyes afire as he stares at his screen. You will be our savior, our messiah, the marketing equivalent of the reincarnated llama. Your parking space will be designated by a sign encrusted with the finest of sapphires and emeralds. Your desk will be made from planks of wood originally used for the Mayflower, the HMS Victory, the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria. You will reap the bounty of a competitive salary and unheard of health and dental benefits in a 401k plan whose robust performance will be lauded for decades, if not centuries, in prose, poetry, and song, and everywhere you step, there will be a bright, beautiful, obscenely well-referenced college intern named, for instance, Daniela, or Mary-Kate, or Chastity, waiting to make your every dream come true. You will be the catalyst of our resurgent glory. We are the lanterns. You are the light. Once you sign your name on the required paperwork, which Gladys will kindly assist you with at the front desk, the world of marketing, as we now know it, will be cataclysmically, irreparably, changed. Sir, I say, I pull out the computer's power cord, the screen, and Mr. HK's face go blank. Sir, I say, I'm not who you say that I am. Mr. HK looks away from the screen. He gazes, deeply disturbed, into my eyes. He squints. He adjusts his glasses. He frowns, takes a deep breath, and says, Then, who are you? I can't even begin to know what to say.
six months after Love Corp gave me the axe, and still no calls from white men in suits after seven to ten business days. My patience is running out. So is my money. My desperation is now spelled with a capital D. Due to my current financial circumstances, I'm willing to take whatever I can get, and so I find myself at the popular family-style restaurant, Transnational Consortium of Dumplings, applying for the position of dishwasher. The Transnational Consortium of Dumplings specializes in serving dumplings as prepared in a variety of disparate countries, China, Poland, Hungary, Sri Lanka, Israel, Tibet, the Lesser Antilles. The manager, who introduces himself only as Bones, accepts my resume and my three impeccable letters of reference, and then sets them aside on the Formica table, where we now sit, without so much as glancing at them. Bones' physical comportment suggests that he would be able to kill me with his bare hands in less than one second, if necessary. The top three nationally distributed publications I would suggest using to most effectively target Bones with an ad campaign are, in no particular order, Maxim, Penthouse, and Guns and Ammo. So, how long you been washing dishes, says Bones, looking me directly in the eye. Ever since I could reach the sink, I say. I don't know whether to call Bones, Bones, or Mr. Bones, so I just drop all personal signifiers. No, I mean commercially, says Bones. You have worked in a professional kitchen before, right? I shift uncomfortably in my vinyl seat. Well, no, not a professional kitchen. Bones hands back my resume and my three letters of recommendation. Sorry, Chester, he says. We're looking for someone with more experience. I can't believe it. More experience? Is he joking? I've washed dishes for over 20 years. I scrub, scour, rinse, dry daily. I transformed a fat-charred, grease-covered rotisserie pan to a gleaming apotheosis of stainless steel transcendence just minutes before taking the BART to this interview. Who needs any experience to be a dumpling-themed chain restaurant dishwasher? Who does this anti-elitist, skeletally-monikered half-wit think he is? Sir, I say, with all due respect, I have a bachelor's degree in business administration and marketing with full academic honors from a respected Big Ten University. Don't you think I can handle a scouring pad and a faucet sprayer attachment? Sorry, Charlie, says Bones. Professional kitchen's a different beast. I need to know you can handle the stress, handle the pressure, handle the heat. I need to know you can wash dishes during wartime. What, I say? Wartime? Bullets flying, says Bones. Bombs falling. The screams. The explosions. The blood. Um, I say. Your best friend, lying next to you, missing an arm, a leg, the right half of his face. Will you be able to wash those dishes? Um, I say. A peasant woman, eyes frozen in terror, carrying the lifeless carcass of her infant son. Will you be able to wipe away that grease? Bones rises from his seat. Amputations, says Bones. Eviscerations. Impalements. Charred remains. Men and women dying in your arms, begging you to shoot them, begging you to put them out of their misery. The smells. The rotting. The screaming. 
God at the screaming, the fear, the terrible fear. Will you remember to handle the dishes carefully? Will you remember to load like items on each rack? Will you remember to always use the correct ratio of water and liquid soap? Bones stops speaking. His lower lip trembles. His eyes are filled with terror. He is noticeably frothing at the mouth. I stand up, extremely self-consciously. I collect my resume and three letters of recommendation. Bones regains normal breathing. He perfunctorily extends his hand. Thank you, he says. We have your phone number on file. We'll let you know of our decision in seven to ten business days. As the good book says, all things must come to pass, and thus after months of Sarah's and my quantitative and qualitative labors, the F-me-heart-me-heels were rusted from our hands and conferred to the slick-haired, necktie-abhorring whiz-kids of advertising. Our data suggesting market segmentation across lines of geography, demography, psychography, and behavior. Our recommendations for optimal market targeting summarized in succinct, double-spaced, three-ring-binded reports. Our FME heart responsibilities fulfilled, we were reassigned to solo projects, the furniture division's platonic love seat for Sarah, the publishing division's lonely man's pocket guide to enjoin involuntary celibacy for me, and all of our accumulated FME heart wisdom, the boxes and shelves and filing cabinets brimming with manila and three-ring and tabbed hanging folders, brimming with reports, surveys, and studies, brimming with plots and tables and annotated stats on who we are and where we're from and what we do and why, with reasonable statistical confidence, we do it, was either condensed into a few easily digestible emails sent to advertising or relegated to storage in parts of our building unknown. The paper trail of our toils, sharing a final resting place with other market research projects of fiscal quarters past, the self-hugging sweater, the travel-size marital replacement, the just friends impenetrable blow-up doll. There is always a bittersweetness when a project ends, a feeling of culmination and accomplishment tempered by a sense of absence and loss. In the case of Project F Me Heart Me, this bittersweetness was far more bitter than sweet, as it meant that my daily face-to-face time with Sarah, no longer guaranteed by job-mandated collaboration, shriveled down to the occasional rushed cafeteria lunch break or brisk, tauntingly ephemeral chance encounter in the hall. No more joint coffee runs, breaking up the monotony of a day spent squinting at stats and superscript footnotes. No more after-hours tete-a-tetes, tying up the afternoon's loose ends before I reluctantly left Sarah's intimate, perfume-filled office for the BART train to my Sarah-less, bare-walled home. I would work alone in my particle-board cubicle, preparing multi-question surveys concerning the sales potential of the lonely man's pocket guide to enjoying involuntary celibacy, and frequently find myself succumbing to productivity-halting nostalgia, my thoughts lost in reminiscences of Sarah and I preparing PowerPoints together, Sarah and I tabulating survey data together, Sarah and I sharing coffee and danishes together, 
her tiny office, electric with her presence, her fragrance, her voice. Sarah in elevators, in the parking garage, in, when her visionary whimsy allowed it, my shower, my bed, my arms. These workday remembrances come fantasies, increasingly seductive, because when I did see Sarah, in real life, she talked more and more about Steve, Steve's barbecuing prowess, Steve's French New Wave DVD collection, Steve's new ad campaign for Aflac, featuring moody, suggestively posed teenage models wearing nothing but strategically placed applications for supplemental insurance policies, so that, in time, I discovered I preferred the Sarah of my dreams, the Golden Age Sarah, who won my heart with her wit and charm and informal elevator surveys. Which marshmallow shape would you least like to find in a children's breakfast cereal? A handgun, a crack pipe, or an engorged phallus? To the flesh and blood Sarah, who now spoke of nothing but my rival, my lunch breaks increasingly spent alone, in retro reverie, remembering the days before I even knew Steve existed, when Sarah, sweet Sarah, was, with reasonable statistical confidence, destined to be mine. Soon, around the time I was let go by Love Corp, my boss calling me into her office, requesting I shut the door, inauspiciously clearing her throat, the F me heart me heel ads started appearing around town, luggy models imploring me to heart them on the subway, on billboards, on the sides of buses, even luggier models begging me to F them inside the pages of the Bay Guardian and the SF Weekly, their carnal come-ons tastefully rendered in crisp, classic Helvetica font. I would ride the subway to yet another fruitless job interview, my resume and three impeccable letters of recommendation stowed in a beyond-my-tax-bracket briefcase, purchased in the hopes that its base, hollow extravagance might impress equally base, hollow potential employers, I would catch myself involuntarily classifying my fellow commuters as either heart-me-women or f-me-women. After all, I knew the statistics. A heart-me-woman, most likely a married or divorced, church-going, four to five daily hours of TV watching, one and a half pet owning, ladies home journal subscribing, irony unappreciating, non-smoker. An F-me woman, most likely a single, college-educated, moderate to heavy social drinking, Facebook utilizing, iPhone or Blackberry worshipping, sexually adventurous, occasional orgasm faker. Which is not to say that all churchgoers are necessarily heart-me women, or that an iPhone owner can't be a heart-me woman, or that heart-me women never drink heavily, or buy blackberries, or fake orgasms, or appreciate irony. That's both the beauty and the bane of market research. There is always an element of mystery, until she empties her wallet in the women's apparel section of a Love Corp retail outlet, or clicks the appropriate ad item to cart in lovecorp.com's online store. There's no definitive way of knowing if the Gucci-toting 20-something seated beside me on the BART is a heart-me woman or an F-me woman. She could be both. She could be neither. But my heart of hearts says, F-me. Three and a half months later, 
circa fruitless job interviews 12, 13, 14, two weeks after my late night call to my buddy at Honey Entrapment, I found myself in a strange place, physically and emotionally. Emotionally, I was confused, embittered, drained, desperate, depressed. Physically, I was lying on my back in a rain-soaked Trader Joe's parking lot, frantically attempting to affix a GPS tracking device to the undercarriage of Sarah's boyfriend's Toyota Land Cruiser. The plan, concocted with assistance from my aforementioned pal at Honey Entrapment, was simple. Attach the GPS device, skedaddle, monitor Steve's movements for several weeks, get a sense of his daily routine, his commute, his evenings, his weekends, where he shops, exercises, eats, drinks, sleeps, take note of any deviations thereof. Is he maybe spending some evenings and early mornings in San Francisco's seedier districts? Is he maybe staying the occasional night at a residence neither Sarah's nor his own? And if not, if everything seems to be in order, then phase two, identify his favorite haunts, sports bars, coffee shops, barbecue joints, pool halls, etc. Add to his favorite haunts, courtesy of my Love Corp severance package, two or three sultry, suggestively clad honey entrapment actresses, said actresses wired for sound and captured by hidden high-definition cameras. Will Steve be able to resist a petite, midriff-bearing belly dancer, abdominally undulating to the haunt's spiciest possible jukebox selections? A curvaceous blonde in skin-tight leather, repeatedly requesting assistance with a malfunctioning zipper? An exotic beauty in F-me heels, conspicuously fashioning cherry stems into sheepshank and Steve Doors knots, using only her tongue? Research suggests... No. Research suggests... Phase 3. The anonymous mailing of photo, video, and audio evidence of Steve's infidelities to Sarah's publicly listed address. His hands all over some other woman's body. His tongue inside some other woman's mouth. His voice calling some other woman, baby, sweet thing, pussycat, love. Then, a waiting period. Time for Sarah to confront Steve with the evidence, demand an explanation, reject his apologies, throw the bum out. A week probably sufficient. Now I swoop in. An unexpected phone call, a familiar voice serendipitously materializing in her time of confusion, pain, bitter need. Hi Sarah, just thought I'd check in, see how you're doing. What's that? Steve? He did what? Oh my god. A belly dancer? F me heels? A sheepshank knot? Sarah, I'm so sorry. I truly am. Who could have seen this coming? Not you. Not me. I always thought Steve was a real keeper. Phase 4. An offering of my full support. A number to call. A shoulder to cry on. An assurance of brighter days to come. An invitation to dinner. Phase 5. Candlelight. Berry white. Diamonds. Till death. I do. Etc. Easy. Piece of cake. 
simple, except everything became a lot less simple beneath the undercarriage of Steve's Land Cruiser. Logical holes suddenly appeared in my master plan in the Trader Joe's parking lot in the dark of night as I struggled feverishly to secure the GPS tracking device to my arch-rival's parked luxury SUV. Like, what if Steve didn't have any favorite haunts? No bars, no coffee shops, no diners, no restaurants, no clubs. What if he spent every hour, every evening, every weekend, every federal holiday by Sarah's side? Did I mention that Steve was with Sarah inside the Trader Joe's as I lay supine beneath his Toyota? That I had staked out Love Corp at the end of the workday, witnessed Steve pick Sarah up on the street, and followed Steve's Land Cruiser to the Trader Joe's parking lot and my car with chronic transmission problems? And what if I did catch Steve alone and the honey entrapment actresses did writhe and preen and jiggle and strut, and he refused to take the bait? No wayward hands, no unfaithful tongue. What if he was, basically, a good guy? What if he loved Sarah as much as I loved Sarah? What if he loved her more? And, assuming I could catch Steve alone, and the actresses could persuade him to stick his tongue down their throats, and the resultant audiovisual evidence mailed to Sarah's home address could spark the rapid dissolution of her and Steve's relationship, what made me think she would fall in love with me? Me, three and a half months unemployed. Me, struggling nightly to achieve meaningful human connection on 3D Virtual Date 2.0. Me, lying in a cold, fetid puddle beneath her boyfriend's Land Cruiser, attempting to set in motion events that would cause her tremendous agony, self-doubt, sorrow, pain. Who could love somebody like this? Could a person like this even love? Because what if I didn't really love her? If I'd been fooling myself all along? If my love was not capital L love, but the love of Love Corp, of Heart Me F Me, of the man in the muskrat costume, an Exxon Mobil kind of love, a perversion, a disorder, a disease, easy. Piece of cake. Simple. My work complete, I wriggled out from under Steve's SUV and regained my footing in the supermarket parking lot. I was freezing, shaking, sobbing wet. Through the store windows, I could see Sarah waiting in the checkout line. Steve, smiling by her side. Steve, tousling her hair. Steve and Sarah, so clearly happy harmonious, in love. There, in the Trader Joe's parking lot, my heart just about broke. I wanted to run to the windows, bang on the glass, tell them both I was sorry, that it wasn't myself, that I couldn't sleep, this wasn't me, I just needed some sleep. Instead, I ran into my car. Instead, I skedaddled. Instead, I stayed up. All night, tossed and turned, clutched my pillow, clenched my sheets. At morning light, I rose, opened my laptop, checked my email. Nothing of note in my inbox, but a news headline caught my eye. Love Corp had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
all but a handful of its subsidiaries, casualties of corporate restructuring, were folding, parts and things, gone, acquire a child, gone, matrimony mart, love for sale, mail order affection, gone, 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 and as for honey entrapment, and by extension my last-ditch Machiavellian scheme to win my beloved sweet sweet Sarah's heart, the headlines accompanying photo of twenty attractive women standing in line and F me heels to file for unemployment benefits said it all. Gone. 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 Since Love Corp collapsed, I've been terribly frustrated and desperate and lonely, but I have been sleeping much better. This thanks to my nightly use of Sueño Alegre, an amazing brand of Mexican sleeping pills available only through the black market, secured by the same buddy of mine whom I gave my wisdom tooth Oxycontin, a real pal when I'm in a pinch. It's striking the difference a good night's sleep makes. My skin healthier, my mind clearer, my outlook sunnier, my energy level through the roof. No more long, restless nights listening to my next-door neighbors running commentaries on their crescendoing copulation. No more insomniac internet surfing, finding myself reading at four in the morning some 18-year-old TV actress's personal opinions on healthcare reform, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the five easy steps to a flawless complexion. Every night, around 10.30 or 11 p.m., I down two sueño alegres with a glass of milk, brush my teeth, floss, strip down to my boxers, and climb into bed, and by the time my head hits the pillow, I'm pretty much out like a log. No tossing and turning, no pillow clutching, no sheep counting, just golden slumbers, peaceful repose, blissful Z's. Except when I experience Sueño Alegre's unwanted side effects and am plagued all night by recurring, nightmarish, soul-shatteringly horrifying dreams. In the most common recurring dream, I am seated in the office of the CEO of Love Corp. The CEO, in the dream, has pale skin and glowing eyes and is probably seven feet tall. As Alpine Zither music plays from unseen speakers, the CEO stands by the office's plate glass windows and looks out on San Francisco, smiling, savoring his breathtaking 35th story view, while intermittently humming along to the Zither music, which borrows melodies from various office-friendly soft rock favorites, What a Fool Believes, Time in a Bottle, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by you. Meanwhile, I sit at a desk, in front of a computer, periodically taking dictation. Mm-mm-mm, I type, as the CEO absentmindedly hums. Mm-mm-mm-mm, until the CEO turns away from the windows, silences the zither with a clap of his hands, and informs me, in his booming, magisterial voice, that he will now dictate his annual letter to the shareholders. 
your shareholders, this is the CEO, which I dutifully parrot on my desktop computer screen, I am pleased to report to you that in the last fiscal year, we earned a profit of $2.4 billion, or $0.67 cents a share. Revenue increased 5% to $39.7 billion. Employee morale improved. We identified strategic corridors for expansion to increase sales volume in every major division of our company, launched a wealth of successful new products, capturing even greater market share, and made substantial progress toward our goal of delivering consistent, sustainable growth. And yet none of this, the profits, the sales volume, the revenues, the market share, the growth, none of this means anything without love. At this point, my computer screen freezes up. Though I tap and tap, not a single letter appears. But when I try to inform the CEO of this, he ignores me. I cannot promise you that this coming fiscal quarter, we will enjoy record profits, says the CEO, returning to the windows, again gazing upon the hustle and bustle of downtown San Francisco. I cannot promise you that we will continue to strengthen our presence in the important emerging Russian and Southeast Asian markets, but what I can promise you is my love, pure, all-encompassing, unconditional, my love for you like a perpetual beacon, an eternal flame, shining upon you until the end of time. My screen still frozen, I futilely tap, click, pound, whack, nothing, none of this is being transcribed, none of this is being recorded. I again try to tell the CEO, but he still doesn't hear me. Instead, he gazes at San Francisco. He hums the love theme from Flashdance. He goes on. Even if no one else loves you, he says, I will love you. If you were orphaned at birth, I will love you. If you were disowned by your entire family, I will love you. If you have a terrifying facial disfigurement that requires you to reside in a subterranean lair, forever mournfully playing old gospel tunes on a half-broken B3 organ, I will love you. I try Control-Alt-Delete. I try switching the monitor off and on. I try smashing the keyboard repeatedly against the desk. Nothing works. The letter to the shareholders continues. If you are an outcast, a pariah, he says, I will love you. If you are despised, ridiculed, exiled, feared, I will love you. If you are the physically hideous and socially awkward and stupefyingly untalented fraternal twin of a world-famous supermodel-slash-PhD-holding-molecular-biologist-slash-renowned concert pianist-slash-professional stock race car driver who has absorbed all available love and affection from everyone in your extended family to the point where your parents actually convinced themselves when you were about 19 years old that you were never born, never conceived, that you didn't exist. I will love you. I scream now. I scream to stop. 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 The CEO claps his hands, and the zither returns, playing do that to me one more time. The letter goes on. If you carry hatred in your heart, 
as the CEO, I will love you. If you have done terrible and unspeakable things, I will love you. If you are vile, evil, depraved, deranged, I will love you. Shareholders, even if people say that God does not love you, if you are an atheist, or a blasphemer, or a killer, or a rapist, or a queer, I will love you. My love for you, like a blossoming flower, like a boundless sky, like a warm, comforting, rejuvenating light. And then, I wake up. I wake up screaming, stop, 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 stop. My alarm going off, red LEDs blinking, my sheets damp, drenched with sweat. If I have an interview that morning, I bolt up, shut off the alarm, and commence my morning preparations. Shower, shave, breakfast, etc., all the while shedding my thoughts of all anxiety, dread, hopelessness, and fear in order to cultivate the mindset of a winner, a difference maker, a valuable asset to any organization. But, as is the case more and more, it's only a false alarm. No interview today. The alarm shouldn't have even been set. And so, with nowhere to go, nowhere to be, I shut off the alarm, lie down, close my eyes, and fall back into the arms of a deep and unshakable sleep. <laughs>